Thank you so much, Pastor Eric, and good morning, Castleton. Well, I'm honored to be with you today, and we're going to jump right into the scripture reading for this morning. If you could turn your Bibles and meet me in 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7, and then 18 verses 1 through 2. So if you have your Bible with you, or the Bible app, would you open to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll begin in verse 1. 1 Kings 17. And we see here, beginning in verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he, meaning Elijah, went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Jump with me to 18 verses 1 and 2, and we'll spend the rest of our time in 18 this morning. 18 verse 1, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So as Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, now the famine was severe in Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I'm going to invite you into the story, into the narrative found in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 through 40. And I'm going to be preaching what's called a narrative sermon today, and all that means is I'll simply be using the text along with some creative imagery to try and bring this story to life. I want us to see what's happening in these pages of Scripture and with that said, uh, I'd like to pray and invite the Spirit to be with us this morning. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, we humbly ask that you guide our hearts and our minds this morning in the instruction of your word. We invite your Spirit to be with us. Teach us, Lord. Attune our hearts to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. The Israelites have found themselves in troubling times. Their wells are running dry with no rain cloud in sight. The rivers are growing smaller and smaller by every passing day. The farmers look at their livestock in fear and they can count the ribs on their animals one by one. You see, no dew or rain has touched this ground in three whole years. No rain means limited amounts of water. No water means no crops. No crops means no food. No food means the animals go hungry and thirsty. And so do the people. And in the midst of this drought, the people of Israel find themselves with one drastic problem. They have forgotten the true God of Israel. You see, their king, Ahab, is worshiping Baal, while their forefathers and their ancestors worshiped 
Yahweh, the God who is said to have led the people of, e- the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the desert. And today we find the people of Israel at a fork in the road, not knowing which path to take. You see, the Israelites have found themselves in troubling times. Three years ago, a lone prophet of Yahweh by the name of Elijah went before the king of Israel and declared, no rain or dew will touch this ground until I say so, as we read this morning. And you see, King Ahab was a wicked king, one who is said to do evil in the sight of Elijah's God. It's said in the Hebrew scriptures that Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh to anger than all the kings before him. And friends, that is a statement. But to ice his wicked cake, to put the cherry on top of his evil Sunday, King Ahab was a man who decided to marry outside of the nation of Israel, something that was clearly forbidden for the Israelites, especially their king. You see, if someone married outside of the nation of Israel, their spouse would likely be a follower and worshiper of another god because other nations worshiped other gods. But there was this one Sidonian princess that King Ahab just had to have for political gain and for his own pleasure, and her name was Jezebel. And sure enough, when they married, Jezebel brought her god, Baal, with her to Israel. And soon enough, Ahab started worshiping Baal, and soon after, the people of Israel began to worship Baal. Yes, King Ahab was wicked in the eyes of Yahweh. And thus, after Elijah confronted King Ahab these three years ago, he hid just as he was instructed to by Yahweh. And just as Elijah had exclaimed, not a single drop of moisture has fallen on Israel until this day. And now the hands and the feet of the people are cracked and weary. Their plants, their animals are dying. Their ground is brown and scorched. It's dry and desolate. But the most tragic aspect of all is the people's troubled spirits and their unsettled hearts. Torn between Yahweh And Baal, who would this people serve? Better yet, who was the true God? You see, they desperately need a God to save them, but they don't know who to turn to. And in the beginning verses of our story, we find King Ahab and this prophet Elijah at a standoff. For the first time in three years, they're meeting and they're pointing fingers at each other. And the first thing out of Ahab's mouth is an accusation. Ahab scolds Elijah and he says, you troubler of Israel, look at what you've done. Because Ahab believed that Elijah had angered his god Baal and that's why there was no rain. But Elijah stands firm in the face of his king and he denies the accusation. He points his finger back, he says, no, 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 no. No, look at what you and your family of Baal worshippers have done. Thus these two are at a stalemate early in the morning, neither conceding to the other point, the other's point of view. And it's in this stalemate that Elijah decides to offer a resolution. He wants to provide a solution to their problem. And he offers Ahab an idea. He offers Ahab to call a meeting of all Israel at Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah says, you know, Ahab, why don't you invite the 450 prophets of Baal? And while you're at it, invite the 400 prophets of Asherah. That was the God spouse of Baal. And I'm sure Ahab was suspicious. I'm sure he wondered what this prophet was up to. But he actually decided to accept Elijah's challenge. And he decides to call a last-minute meeting of the nation of Israel. And I bet in the back of Ahab's mind, he's thinking, man, I'm finally, after three years, I'm finally going to get a chance to kill this guy. So that morning, the people of Israel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal, met at the side of Mount Carmel. But interestingly, those prophets of Asherah were nowhere to be found. And now as Elijah is at the mountain, he's watching the people of Israel trickle in. He could see the anguish faces and how their appearance told the story of these last three years. And I'd imagine as Elijah looked over the crowd, I bet a righteous anger began to well up within his heart. And he's wondering why. Why have the people turned away from their God, how could they forget Yahweh? But with that anger, I bet at the same time, his heart was breaking. Just wanting the people to come back to their nation's creator, to their nation's God, just wanting them to repent of their wavering hearts and their faithless reality. But after most of the Israelites arrived at the mountain that morning, we see in chapter 18, verse 21, that Elijah came near to all the people. And he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Elijah begins this national meeting by asking the people to make a decision. He's asking them to quit wavering back and forth between two different gods and to stand firm either in Yahweh or in Baal. But sadly, the response of the people that morning was silence. The people didn't know who to turn to. They were confused. And I imagine a weary farmer thinking to himself, how does this prophet expect me to know the answer to his question while my fields are gone, my livestock are dying, and my family is fading away? Through the silence, you can hear the phrase, I don't know, crying out in the hearts of the Israelites. But today... Elijah is offering a solution, and he decides to announce the real reason that he's called Israel to Mount Carmel. You see, Elijah is going to hold a contest. Yes, Elijah is going to have a battle of the gods, a showdown between two deities. And he announces this contest by sharing with the people the rules of engagement. Look with me at verse 23. Elijah says, let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
And in my mind's eye, I see the faces of the Israelites begin to fill with, fill with eagerness and anticipation and excitement for what could happen here today. Possibly, they're going to see who the one true God of Israel really is. Possibly, they're going to have an answer to their heart's question. And possibly, today, a deity, a God might speak and reveal himself to them. And in unanimous response, the once silent people of Israel respond. They say, yes, this is well spoken. Meaning, we agree, let's, let's hold this contest. And quickly, a man brought forth before Elijah and the prophets of Baal two bulls, providing them as the sacrificial animals for this contest. But it's at this moment that Elijah does something strange. And he announces to the people and to the prophets that the prophets of Baal can go first. Yeah, while, while looking at the two bulls, Elijah yields to the prophets and he says, you choose the bull you want and you go first, I'll wait and go second. Now, to me, I'm just going to be honest, this is a risky decision. You see, the odds are already stacked against Elijah in so many ways. I mean, he is one prophet against 450. Now, when I was in kindergarten, my teacher taught me this little rule, there are strength in numbers. Clearly, the prophets of Baal had the numbers. But not only is it one against 450, it turns out Elijah is at Baal's stronghold. Mount Carmel is known as the stronghold of Baal. This is Baal's turf. He's walking into Baal's house. This is his land. And Elijah seems to give away the only advantage that he might have. And he says, no, the prophets of Baal can go first. That's fine. He allowed them first choice, and I imagine after giving them first choice, they picked their bull, and Elijah takes the second. And I imagine Elijah just goes up the mountain just a, a little ways and finds a nice little spot to sit and observe the prophets of Baal in the start of this competition. So the prophets began preparing their bull to sacrifice to Baal. Some of them were constructing an altar, some were cutting up and preparing the portions of the bull, and some went to nearby villages to gather tools for their seance. And at no time at all, still in the morning hours, the prophets of Baal were ready to sacrifice. Still early in the morning, the prophets began to call upon Baal, some laying down in prostration, some were on their knees, some standing with their arms held high, some dancing around the altar, and some screaming out for Baal to answer. And the people of Israel watched with anticipation, hoping that today a deity might speak, hoping to witness the work of a real God before their very eyes. And in my mind's eye, I see the Israelites crowding around the prophets in a large circle, everyone just wanting to see if Baal would respond, just wanting to see if a God might act, wanting something to happen. But after a short while of the prophets weeping and crying out, a short while, I bet the crowd began to lose excitement when no answer was to be found. Their enthusiasm was probably dying, and boredom, I bet, was beginning to set in. <laughs> yes, like small children in a church service, I bet the Israelites had a short attention span that, that morning. And soon, I bet they began mingling among themselves as the prophets continued to do their thing. 
But in his confidence, Elijah didn't gather with the people. He's not crowded around the prophets of Baal. Instead, he was sitting just on his stoop a little ways up the mountain, enjoying the Baal prophets' failed attempts. He wasn't worried, wasn't anxious. He hadn't even started preparing an altar yet. He hadn't even slaughtered his bull. It's still sitting with him, alive and well. He's just relaxing and watching the people and observing the scorched grass around him. And by noon, the prophets of Baal still had not received a response. So Elijah decided to stir the pot a little. Look with me, and let's see what Elijah does in verse 27. Elijah draws near and says, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, meaning he's going to the bathroom, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. These were sarcastic stabs. This was Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. You see, Elijah's trying to throw some fuel to get this fire started. And the prophets at that moment realized they were going to have to do something more in order to get their God to respond. So at this time, several prophets went over to grab the tools they had gathered earlier that morning, and they began handing them out to each other. But you see, these aren't your normal tools. These aren't hammers and nails. No, these tools were swords and knives, lances and spears. And right about now, the attention of the Israelites was recaptured at what the prophets were about to do. And in a sad and desperate attempt for their God to hear them, the prophets of Baal began gashing themselves with knives and impaling themselves with swords. Soon enough, their very blood was gushing out of their veins and onto the dry ground around them. These prophets were spilling their very lifeblood to Baal. I mean, surely Baal would hear their gory cries. Surely he would answer the people if they're willing to shed their own blood, wouldn't he? Now we got to pause for a moment. It's important to point out here and remind us that these are very, very dry conditions in Israel. Remember, no rain, no dew has touched the ground in three years. I mean, this is a golden opportunity for Baal to start a fire, isn't it? After all, Baal was actually the god of rain and storms, so surely he could spare a little bolt of lightning to catch this altar of fire. I mean, where I grew up, I grew up in Iowa, that's where I come from, uh, if we went several days throughout the summer with having zero rain, our county would issue what was called a burn ban, because one little ember from any sort of fire could set half a forest on fire, or could set half the town on fire. I mean, so there would be no bonfires, no brush fires, no burning, no grilling outside, because one ember could create a huge fire. You see, friends, in Israel at this point, these conditions are ripe for Baal. But as the blood of his prophets continued to wet the ground, nothing happened. Weeping and sobbing is ringing out through the sky. And the prophets began to grow weary in their bloody ritual. And the Israelites wondered if this would be enough for Baal to hear them. They so desperately wanted a living God that they could serve. But their hope in Baal was fading. Fast forward a few hours and the day is growing old and the sun is beginning to set. 
Evening is now upon Israel, and soon darkness would fall over the land. And the prophets of Baal are now laying half dead on the red-painted ground, bathing in their own blood. While Elijah is still sitting on the hill, waiting patiently. Elijah has given the Baal prophets all day, and now in only a short amount of time, the day would be over. He hasn't even began his preparations. Baal has taken all day to do nothing, and how long would Elijah need to call upon Yahweh? And I imagine the people of Israel asking that very question as they grow tired and irritated after such a long and anticlimactic day. I bet some of them are thinking to themselves, man, I wasted a whole day. I brought my family out in this drought and this heat to see nothing. And I imagine some of the Israelites are beginning to pack up and getting ready to take their family home before nightfall. But just then, in that last hour of the day, Elijah rises up from his resting place and he calls out to the people of Israel to gather around him. And those who were packing to go home probably figured, eh, what's another hour? Let's see if something would happen. And as the people of Israel drew near to Elijah, they noticed that there was an altar lying in ruins close to where Elijah had been resting. And as they drew closer to that altar, they saw the name Yahweh etched on its broken pillars. This altar was a symbol of their forgotten God and abandoned faith. Look with me at verse 31. At this time, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with those 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. You see, friends, Elijah is symbolically using 12 stones to remind Israel who they are and who their God is. To remind them that their God is Yahweh. Elijah has strategically waited until now to prepare his sacrifice because this was the time of the offering of oblation. You see, friends, the offering of oblation was the Israelite ritual in which the people of Israel were supposed to offer a lamb to Yahweh every morning as the sun was rising and every evening as the sun was setting. And this was that specific time, at that specific place at the altar of Yahweh on Mount Carmel. Friends, Elijah is strategically and symbolically attempting to rekindle the Israelites' flame in their heart for their God. He's reminding them of their identity. And after Elijah had rebuilt the altar with 12 stones, he began to place the wood on top of the altar. He then sacrificed the bull and set pieces of it on top of the wood. But after the altar was finished, Elijah was not satisfied. So oddly, Elijah begins digging a trench around the altar. And I'm sure you, along with the Israelites, are probably asking yourselves, what in the world is Elijah doing? The odds are stacked against him in every way. He's won against 450. He gave first place or first chance to the prophets of Baal. And now nightfall is almost here. And instead of trying to call on Yahweh, he's digging a trench or a moat around the altar. What is he doing? And I imagine at this point, the Israelites are thinking to themselves, this was going to be another failed attempt. Wondering, did Elijah not see how long it took the prophets of Baal to call on their God and get nothing? But when Elijah finished the trench, 
he still was not satisfied. So Elijah looks at four men in the crowd around him, and he says, each of you take a jar and go down to the nearby stream, fill it up, and bring it back to me. Now, I envision these four men were probably perplexed, probably trying to figure out what Elijah was doing. But they obeyed him. They grabbed four jars. Then they walked to the nearby stream, what was probably once a river, now more than a crit, now no more than a crick. And I picture that as one of the men begins filling his jar, he's thinking to himself and questioning Elijah's motives, wondering if, if this water, the use of what they're going to use the water for was worth it, thinking, you know, my family could use this water. My livestock died because we don't have much water because of the drought. Doesn't Elijah see how wasteful this might be? but I imagine the man setting aside his hesitations. He finished filling his jar and went with the other three back up to where Elijah was. And when they returned to Elijah, Elijah looks at them and he says, pour the water over the sacrifice. I assume the four men were probably baffled at this request. Yet they obeyed and they began pouring the water over the altar and the water gushes over all of it, but Elijah still wasn't satisfied. So he looks at these four men and with boldness declares, do it a second time. Once again, the men are taken back by the command of Elijah, probably thought, this guy's kind of crazy, and took another four jars of water out. They hiked back to the side of the mountain where the altar stood, and they poured it on again. But Elijah still was not satisfied. So he looked at the four men and he commanded them, do it a third time. By now I bet the people of Israel were amazed at Elijah's absurdity. The men began to snicker at his ignorance and they thought about how impossible it would be to set this thing on fire. And I imagine by now there are whispers going throughout the people of Israel, laughing and mocking under their breath at Elijah's stupidity and carelessness. But the four men, they obeyed him, they went back to the creek, they grabbed the four waters, then they took it back to him and they poured it over a third time. And now everything on that altar was soaked to the core. The sacrifice was a disaster, the meat was sliding everywhere, and the trench is now overflowing. And as the men walk back into the crowd, they're probably thinking not even 12 jars of oil could light that disaster. But... Just before sunset, we read in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And in an instant, after Elijah finished his call, a mighty blaze poured forth from the heavens, consuming the entire altar. And all in attendance gasped and screamed at the raging fire before their very eyes. And the flaming river rained down from above and burned as a beacon for the world to see. And the people's skin begins to cook at the sweltering flame before them. And as their gaze came upon the glorious flame, their eyes reflected its radiant and powerful light. And after several brief moments, it was over. 
the people of Israel. You see them rubbing their eyes, looking back to see nothing. Not even ashes remained in the place where that altar once stood. The smoldering fire of Yahweh vaporized the wood, the meat, the stones, and the water. And all that remained was a crater before them. And this is beautiful, that the Israelites, in response, they fell on their faces and surrendered to Yahweh. And they cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord He is God. But Elijah was still not satisfied. Elijah looked around and he saw the prophets of Baal. His heart burned with a righteous anger from the Lord. And he called out to the Israelites in verse 40 saying, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Yes, friends, that is the righteous consequence for the unrighteous prophets of Baal. And that, friends, is where our story ends. Once again, Yahweh is the victor. He stands as the God of the universe, God over all. But you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Evan, I I hear what you're saying. This is a great story, but what's your point? Why are you sharing this story with us today? And friends, it's simple. It's, It's that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we follow the Old Testament God by the name of Yahweh. He is the one true God who is jealous, and he commands complete and total dedication to him. Yes, you and I, as followers of Christ, serve Yahweh, the only God, the one God of the universe, and he is jealous for our affection, for our devotion, and for our worship. And nothing can come before him. If you've been a Christian for a while, I'm sure you know the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment states, you shall have no other God before me. And you're probably still thinking to yourself, okay, Evan, yeah, I, I get it. You're, you're preaching to the choir. We love Jesus. That's why we're here this morning. But friends, the reason I tell this story is to encourage you and I to check our hearts. Because like the Israelites in this story, you and I can so easily allow something or someone to slip into that number one spot in your life to take God off of his throne and to put him on the back burner. Friends, I'm willing to bet each of us have struggled with our own personal bales, our own idols. And my question for you today is what or who is your bale? You know that thing or person that steals your attention and consumes your devotion. Your bale may be money could be your career or maybe your emotions. It could be the, the worldview that you have. It could be your friends or your smartphone or your spouse or your fiance, yourself. It could be your children. It could be your church. Sometimes, friends, I'll admit, churches are get, get so wrapped up in what they're doing, they forget who they're serving. I've been in, part, in congregations like that before, and it's a sad day. Your bail might be success or exercise or food or politics. It might be sleep, it might be Twitter, whatever it is. If it comes before God, 
it becomes your God. And my desire today is for us to allow the fire from heaven, the Holy Spirit, to check our hearts and see who or what is number one in your life. Because if we call ourselves Christians, but Christ isn't our foundation, the world will chew us up and spit us out. Fellow brothers and sisters, the question I have is, are we a wavering generation? Are we a wavering people that can't decide between the gods that they serve? Like Israel so quickly could not decide between Baal and Yahweh. Saints, are we going to be a wavering people or a place in history? You might be here this morning and you might not yet be a believer and you might be thinking to yourself, man, I, I, I thought Christians had it all together. Well, I'll be the first one to tell you, friend, it's, we don't, but we know the one who does. You see, this God, Yahweh, came down into the earth in the human flesh two years ago, and his name is Jesus. He came to this earth to live a perfect, sinless, unbroken life because you and I could not. He lived that perfect life. He died a perfect death. He rose from the grave, ascended to heaven where he sits and waits for those, where he waits to come back for those who believe in him. And he offers salvation to all who believe in him. And that is what we as Christians are. Those who believe in this Jesus, who lived perfectly on our behalf and now stands in our place, gives us his righteousness. As Christians, we cling to this phrase, and we cling to the hope of Jesus, and we know this phrase is true from the Apostle Paul in Philippians, where he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. As Christians, we cling to Jesus, the perfect one, knowing that one day we will get to live with him in all of eternity. We will be ridden of sin and brokenness, and it will never touch us again. That is what we are as Christians but in this already, but not yet, or we're not yet perfect, our hearts still struggle. When I was in high school, I was a very active member of our marching band. I didn't know Jesus until my senior year of high school, and had it not been for music, I probably wouldn't have gone to school. For four years, I devoted my fall semesters to the, the marching band. Two years, I was on the drum line, I played Quint Toms, and the other two years, I conducted our band as the drum major. Our band director, Mr. Crawford, or Croft as we called him, would run practices a very specific way, would run rehearsals. We had nightly rehearsals a couple times a week where we as a marching band would be on the football field, we'd play music and then make pictures with all of our bodies. That makes sense? We'd make pictures with our bodies on the field. And our band director would sit above the football field, he'd look down, he'd listen to our music, and more importantly, he'd watch our formations to make sure the pictures we were supposed to be hitting looked flawless. And for four seasons, there was one phrase I grew very accustomed to from Croft. See, countless times in a rehearsal, we would hear Croft call out to us over the PA system. He'd say, band, check and adjust. You see, Croft would look at the pictures we were making on the field. He'd stop us and he'd say, band, check and adjust. And that was because in order to make those pictures, each person of the 120 people on that football field had what was called a dot. That was the exact location they were supposed to be standing in in order to make the picture look like a picture. For instance, if we were trying to make a smiley face and one person was one foot off their dot in either direction, 
it'd make that smiley face look like it had a pimple. It ruined the picture. So we'd hear countless times in rehearsal, band, check and adjust. We'd hear 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 times in one two-hour rehearsal, band, check and adjust. And then there were those nights where Croft would go through our entire 20-minute show, four beats at a time, and say, band, check and adjust. One, two, three, four, halt, band, check and adjust through a 20-minute show. But you see, what Croft was trying to get us to do was check our location and then adjust to where we were supposed to be. He was trying to get us to have a beautiful picture. And I share that with you today because brothers and sisters, you and I can so easily find ourselves in idolatry. And really what we need to do every moment of every day is remind ourselves to check our hearts and adjust to where we're supposed to be. Part of being a Christian is allowing the Spirit to check our hearts to see who or what is number one in our lives. And then when we find that it's not Yahweh, it's to ask the Spirit to put Yahweh on the throne of our lives once more. We're meant to check and adjust. So every day I challenge you and I to go to the Mount Carmel of our hearts, to check if God, Yahweh, Jesus is number one, and then let the God of all the universe burn all of the bales that might try and consume our devotion and place Yahweh on the throne of our hearts. Friends, we can't be a wavering generation. We must continue to check our hearts and adjust. Check and adjust. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we are so grateful for you. It is amazing that the God of all the universe, the creator of everything in existence, loves us and cares about us collectively and individually. We want to give you praise this morning and say you are God and there can be no others before you. So I pray that your spirit would teach us on a moment-by-moment basis to check and adjust, to see who our God is, to remind us that it's Yahweh every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.